Turn, if you would, to the 10th chapter of the book of Mark. Last week we dealt with a uh, familiar story that uh, I have uh, referenced a whole lot. Today's story is another familiar story. We've seen several of these uh, interactions between Jesus and people coming to him to ask him questions. Um, we had Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night. We had uh, a couple of weeks ago the lesson of the Good Samaritan where the teacher of the law came to Jesus and asked him for what was the greatest commandment. And if you remember the discussion, the man tried to justify himself to Jesus by querying him about who is my neighbor, which is what produced the story of the Good Samaritan. So... Mark chapter 10, verse 17, we have another man coming to Jesus. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The man comes to Jesus. We know from uh, a few verses from now that this is a rich man. The other Gospels will tell us that he is a young man. It will tell us that he is a ruler of the people. He is a man of some influence in the community, probably because of his wealth. But as we're going to see, he is probably a, um, a righteous individual. He is a man who is trying to do the right thing. But he comes to Jesus, not like Nicodemus at night, but in the middle of the day, he comes to Jesus, he runs to Jesus, which tells us a certain eagerness on his part, and he kneels before Jesus, and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You have to admit, he is asking the right question. He is asking the right question, he is asking the right person the right question, and he's asking really from the right motivation. He really does want to know. He is not like the teacher of the law that we saw several weeks ago who was trying to trap Jesus into saying something that violated the teaching of the Jews. He really does want to know the answer. So I guess my question is, what causes people to come running to Jesus? What causes people to come to him and bow down and ask him this question? Come on, this is. Jesus has something that nobody else has. The prompting of the Holy Spirit in his life. Somebody else. He knows he has a problem. That's interesting. We're going to see in a moment that he, to the best of his ability, has been keeping the commandments as he understands them. But yet he still senses that he is missing something. He is still sensing that there is something he has to do that he's not doing. You could argue we have a guy here with a very guilty conscience and we're not sure why. We've mentioned before in here Martin Luther when he was a monk and would go to confession for three to four hours every day. 
And the priest who was hearing the confession said, Martin, come back when you have something real to confess. But Martin knew there was something missing. I think we may have some of that in this man here. He recognizes that he's been living in the law, under the law, and that he can't keep it. Let's keep reading. So his question is, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, why do you call me good? Hmm. Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Now that's a strange response. I mean, let's face it. If somebody's going to come running to me and tell me, you know, ask the right question to the right person at the right time with the right motivation, you would think you'd go, good question. Here, let me tell you the answer. And you and I, if we were on top of things, would pull out our four spiritual laws or something and begin a discussion there. Instead, Jesus kind of takes a little jab at him and says, Why do you call me good? There is no one good but God. He is beginning to point out to this individual the reality that in human terms there is no one righteous. But, comma, he's also pointing out to the individual, You called me good. But only God is good. Do you understand that I am God? Probably not at this point, but it is laid there on the table. Why do you call me good? Do you understand what you're saying when you call me good? Do you understand the implications? In human terms, there is no unrighteous. We will see that in the book of Romans, in the writings of Paul. There is no one who does that which is right. But you call me good. Hmm. Let's keep reading. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. He's assuming that this individual knows the Ten Commandments. Now, I thought about having a contest and see how many of the Ten Commandments we could uh, name. Um, studies show that most Americans think that the Ten Commandments still apply, and most Americans who attend church can only name two of them. <laughs> hmm. Go figure. But I'll cheat and give you the list. Basically, what he is telling the young man is the bottom portion of this list he's saying you know the commandments and he gives a list of them do not murder do not commit adultery do not steal do not give false testimony do not defraud wait a minute do not defraud is not on that list hmm honor your father and your mother he is telling the individual you know what you need to do right right the change, if you will, in the one that says do not defraud, um, some commentaries believe that it's kind of a, well, let's just say that it is a sin that a rich man 
might perpetrate against a poor man. A poor man would be more likely to come up to the rich man with a knife and say, give me your money. Good old-fashioned stealing. The rich man is more likely to defraud the poor man and take his money through, um, shall we say, manipulation of some sort. It's just an interesting thought. So he gives the young man a list of commandments and says, here they are. You know what to do. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Now, you and I, sitting where we are today, would have probably looked at him and said, yeah, right. Okay? You've done this. Well, we also have an understanding from, say, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus takes these commandments and internalizes them to make them matters of the heart. So that not only is it not enough to avoid adultery, or enough to avoid adultery, you have to avoid lusting. It's not enough just to avoid murdering someone. You have to avoid anger at them that produces the heart, that produces the murder in the first place. As Christ takes these and applies them to the condition of your heart. We know that today. We've read these scriptures. So we would look at the young man and go, yeah, right. But the reality is, I think this young man had followed these commandments since he was a boy. The Since he was a boy gives us the idea that, you know, when he turned 12 and they do the bar mitzvah and all of that, you're no longer a boy, you're a man. And so from that time forward, he had accepted the responsibilities that the Jewish law had put on him on how to live his life. And he had made an effort at it. Jesus does not chastise him for breaking any of these commandments. Let's keep reading. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Don't you like that phrase? Jesus looked at him, and it wasn't disdain. It wasn't, oh yeah, right. It says that he loved him. He loved the eagerness in this young man's life to find the truth. But he also loves him enough to tell him the truth even though he knows what's going to come out of it. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. He looks at the young man whom he loves, not whom he hates, not whom he's trying to run off, not who he's trying to abuse, but man that he loves, and he looks at him and says, there's one thing missing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Now, in my younger days, when I taught this passage, 
I went to great lengths to talk about the fact that this passage is directed toward this young man. Jesus looked at this young man, knew that thing that was hindering his total devotion to God, and pointed that thing out to that man. It is not a general injunction to all of us to sell everything we have and give to the poor. We're off the hook. But later, as I thought about this passage, it began began to dawn on me that if this was this individual's one thing, what is our one thing? And if this individual's one thing was so difficult for him to release, why would we expect our one thing to be any easier? Our first thought is, I'm off the hook. But upon reflection, we realize that we too are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength. I left this list of the Ten Commandments up here. Why? What's the first one? There is no other, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Christ tells us you cannot serve God and money. This individual wanted to be righteous before God, but he also wanted to trust the wealth and what it had provided for him, both in his community and in his individual life. He was trusting his wealth to be his God, and Christ says, stop it, and then come follow me. So we have to ask the question, What is it that we elevate to the status of God above God in our lives? And Christ tells us, stop it and come follow me. Go sell everything you have. Christ, because of his love for this individual, zeroed in on the thing that was lacking in his life. Now think about that just for a moment. I don't want to condemn anyone because this is our basic human nature, but if this individual came to our church today, okay, came to a, you know, a good church, our church today, and said, I want to follow Jesus, we would have handled it a little different. First off, we would not have had the insight that Christ has into the human heart, necessarily. My question is, would we have the love that would allow us to speak truth to this individual, even though it might mean that he not join, stay, become a member of our community, our church? Christ was willing to take the risk to tell the man what the man needed to hear. Are we willing to do the same thing? Now, having said that, 
we should be cautious. We are not Jesus. <laughs> Remember that. Any question about that? We're not God. We work with people differently. We probably are a little slower. <laughs> Christ was able to look at him and out of love tell him, we sometimes believe that as we look at the lives of those around us, the lives of our children, the lives of other people, that out of love we will not bring up that one thing that is lacking. That out of love we will not talk about things that are uncomfortable. That out of love we will not take the risk of running people off. As I said, be cautious. Go pray a whole lot about it. But just a thought. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Whew. You're one of the disciples. You're sitting here watching this exchange. This guy comes up, leader of the people, wealthy, young, has the influence, can make things happen, and the master just blew it and ran him off. Hmm. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Why is it hard, why is it harder for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Because they love their things? We put our confidence, our trust, our expectations for the future. Self-reliance. There is a passage in Proverbs that I quote a lot. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. This is a recognition that there are certain sins that the poor are more prevalent to, and there are certain sins that the rich are more prevalent to. We're all prevalent. I mean, we all, okay, there's no question that we're all sinners. But the particular sin that is mentioned here that the rich are more susceptible to is the belief that I don't need God because I have my wealth. My wealth takes care of all my needs. My wealth takes care of all my wants. My wealth is my salvation. Why do I need a God? Go ahead.
Yeah. Hmm? Makes a lot of, of sense. Now, I might add, though, this individual was willing to come to Jesus. He was willing to kneel down in front of him, which is a certain humility on his part. I don't know. Go ahead. It is an illusion. Do you remember several weeks ago? I guess it's been several, several weeks ago. We did the parable of the four soils. And we talked about the, you know, the rocky soil and the shallow soil and the soil that had the weeds and the thorns that choked the life out of the seed. And we talked about wealth and the illusion of wealth. That there is the belief that if I don't have, if I don't have it, there's the belief that if I do have it, all my problems will be solved. And the belief that if I do have it, well, I don't have any problems that money can't take care of. Now, here's the hard part. That was easy. What does the writer in Proverbs 30 ask for? Give me only my daily bread. Notice that that is the definition for him of not being rich and not being poor is my daily bread. I've mentioned in here before the book, um, what is the title of the book? Raising uh, Self-Reliant Children in a Self-Indulgent World. And he talks about the difficulties of raising children in an affluent society. And he gives the test. I've mentioned this here before. Um, do you have a choice of what to wear today? Do you have access to your own means of, means of transportation? That could be a bicycle, a car. Do you have access to a transportation? And do you have a choice of what you eat for dinner? If you can answer yes to any two of those three questions, by the world standards, you are affluent. Hmm. We tend to view things in a relativistic fashion my affluence versus my neighbor's affluence, and all of a sudden I don't stack up very well. Therefore, hmm. We live in a society that tends toward, it isn't there, but it tends toward the affluent end of this scale. We're more like the rich in that we believe that money can take care of all of our problems. And don't be mistaken, I am talking about myself, okay? I've got a child and a half in college, and I've got a daughter getting married three weeks from yesterday, okay? I could pass the plate and take up a collection, and I, I, I could use it, okay? I understand the importance of money. The question is, no, the observation that Christ makes elsewhere is you cannot serve. God and money. It isn't a matter of it's difficult to serve God in money. It's hard to serve God in money. He says you cannot do it. Does that mean you cannot be wealthy and be a Christian? Of course not. Of course it doesn't mean that. <laughs> there have been 
lots of wealthy Christians who have used their money wisely. But you can't serve both. One will be the master and one will be the slave. Yes. Mm-hmm. If you have your health, it's worth more than money. Yeah, we can talk about money coming and going. Mine just tends to go. <laughs> I was saying yesterday, if I could do direct deposit to Walmart of my paycheck, it would all just be taken care of. <laughs> yes. <laughs> His observation was, look at the lotto winners. I don't know if you followed the news this week. They were talking about the guy who won the first uh, series of the TV show Survivor and won a million dollars. He is back in prison. (laughs) After spending three years in prison for not paying taxes on his million dollars, he is back in prison because he has yet to pay the taxes on his million dollar winning. Anyway, go ahead. Very good. So Jesus said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words. Why would the disciples be amazed? Because in their community, money was considered a blessing of God. If you have lots of money, you have lots of blessing. You must be on God's side if you have wealth. You know, if I were a rich man, la di da di da di da di da. What does the song say? People would bring their problems to me, and I would pretend to tell them the answer, because if you're rich, everybody thinks you know the answer. There was an assumption in the community that if you had money, it was because you were blessed by God. And if you didn't, well, you were cursed. That's why we see back in the Old Testament, Job and his friends. When Job lost everything, the friend's assumption was that he must have committed some horrible sin that made God curse him by taking away all of his stuff and all of his family. There had to be a connection. That's why the disciples were amazed. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said, children, it's interesting that he addresses them as children. (coughs) In the passage just above this, there's a discussion of bringing the children to me, etc. And I think he's just acknowledging to them um, their immaturity, their lack of understanding, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there is some discussion, and 
I'm not sure it's entirely true, you know, about there was a gate in Jerusalem and et cetera, and you'd have to unload the camel. I'm not sure that really applies. I think he really is talking about a camel, and I think he really is talking about the eye of a needle, and he is really talking about the impossibility of shoving that camel through the eye of that needle. Now, I have threaded a few needles in my life, believe it or not. I don't see how my wife does it. You know, you just take a running start and you just kind of jab it in that direction. I have a hard enough time getting a piece of thread through a needle, through the eye of a needle. Jesus gives the picture of a camel. Okay? Anybody want to speculate how big a camel is? (laughs) They're big. They're irritable. Even if you could get it through the eye of the needle, it's not going to enjoy it. He gives them a picture of something that is impossible to accomplish. And he says, that's the picture of how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples respond. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then then can be saved? We're doomed. You're brought up in a society that believes that wealth is a blessing from God. If I have lots of wealth, it means that I'm more blessed by God, probably because I'm more deserving, because I've done better things. Therefore, if I'm wealthy, I'm closer to God and I'm closer to the kingdom of God. And then Jesus says, the wealthy people are so far away from God that it's almost an impossibility that they would enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples just, they just can't, their, their mind can't handle this. If it's nearly impossible, if it is impossible for the rich, who are the closest people to God, to get into the kingdom of heaven, what does it mean for me? What? An elephant through the eye of a needle? I mean, what's the point? How then can anybody be saved? And you know what? The disciples, unbeknownst to them, are beginning to come to the right realization of the root of the problem. This young, rich ruler had come to Jesus to find what thing he had to do to get into the kingdom of God. What one more righteous act do I have to do? I've done everything that I know. The list, I've kept it, I'm a good guy. But something's still missing. And Jesus tells him something that he cannot, will not do. And the disciples said, then if that's the case, if this man, who was in fact a righteous man, if this man can't get into heaven by one more righteous deed, what chance does anybody have? And the answer is, by the works of righteousness, no one will be justified. No one will be saved by their works. 
Disciples, you're right. You're right. How can anybody be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible. It's not difficult. It's not hard. It is impossible. Take the the eye of the needle, take the camel, and shove it through the eye of the needle. I don't care what you do to the camel. You're not going to get it through the eye of the needle. Saving rich people by themselves, by their own works, is impossible. But, comma, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Disciples, you're right. It's hard. It's difficult. It's impossible for a rich man to be saved. In fact, it's hard. It's difficult. It's impossible for anyone to be saved by their own actions. But with God, all things are possible. He's beginning to explain to them that there is going to be a path of salvation that doesn't involve keeping a list of external rules. With God, anything is possible. Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. I don't know about you, but why in the world would Peter say such a stupid thing (laughs) at this point in time? He hadn't caught the point. Well, maybe he's sitting there going, okay, we've just figured out that the rich can't get in, so let's show how poor we are. I've given up everything to follow you. I have nothing. I left my boat. I left my family. I left my fish. I left it all, and I'm following you. I'm in, aren't I? I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them, maybe we better just stop right there, and with them, persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. You know, it all sounds pretty good, except for the persecution line. So maybe if we took our markers and we marked up that word, the rest of it would make a whole lot more sense. Peter says, I've left, we have left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, don't worry about it. Everything that you've left will be repaid. And he actually infers in this life. If you leave your family, Christ says, I'll give you a family. Jesus is talking, remember? And they come to him and say, your mom and your brothers and sisters are here. 
And Jesus says, who, is my, who are my brothers and sisters? It's those that are following me. What's the inference here? You may have to leave father, mother, brother, sister, family, connections, your source of wealth, your source of income. You may have to leave all of that. But he says, I will take care of you. I will replace it with something better. But there's also going to be persecution. It's just odd that in this list of these good things that he's going to give you, he throws in the reality that it's going to be difficult. There's going to be difficulties in this life, but in the life to come, there will be eternal life. Don't be surprised, disciples. Don't be amazed. Don't be shocked. When persecutions and difficult times come, it's just part of the package. We've talked about this in several of the weeks prior to this. If they beat up the master, they're going to beat up the students, the disciples. You just have to accept it. But whatever comes, I promise you, Jesus is telling them, something better. Whatever you've given up, it'll be replaced a hundredfold. And then the final sentence of today's lesson. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Back to the rich young ruler. The disciples had in their minds the way society worked. They're the rich, they're close to God. They're the poor, something's obviously wrong. They've obviously done something wrong. God's cursing them. So we have the first and we have the last. And now Jesus comes along and says, this rich guy, this guy that's really close to God, you think? I just ran him off. I didn't run him off. He left because he wasn't willing to put God first in his life. He wasn't willing to acknowledge the fact that his wealth was a stumbling block between him and God and not a source of blessing from God. This rich guy, he just walked off. And I didn't do it out of malice. I didn't do it because I hated the guy. I loved the guy. But I loved him enough to tell him what was really going on in his life. So disciples, this rich guy, off he went. And in fact, disciples, you ought to know, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. So these people whom the disciples had put in the first slot, they're not there. So Jesus ends by saying that many of the first will be last and many of the last will be first. The hierarchy that you are accustomed to, we're standing on its head. What does he, Jesus say to the religious leaders? See these prostitutes? See these tax collectors? See these 
sinners, they're going to enter the kingdom before you because they acknowledge their need and you don't. What was it that kept the rich man from seeing his need? His wealth. What kept the Pharisees from seeing their need? Their self-righteousness. And we see that throughout the scripture of different groups thinking they had the right answer. Yes. That's right. The thing, those who think they don't need anything. Conclusion. What is it that stands between us and God? I mean, that's the bottom line. Jesus pointed it out to this rich young man. Is God calling all of us to sell all of our wealth? And No, he isn't. He might be calling some of us to do that. But whatever he's calling us to do, he's calling us to take up our cross and follow him. You know, he told the rich young ruler, sell everything you have and then come and follow me. The rich young ruler thought the selling everything he had was the hard part. The come and following me, where was Jesus headed? To a cross. Where were the disciples headed? to fires, to crosses, to you name your way of killing people. That's where they were headed. But that's what Jesus is calling us to. The question is, what stands between us and God? It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom, but with God, all things are possible. Ultimately, it isn't our wealth that condemns us. It isn't our wealth that saves us. And I might add, it's not our poverty that condemns us or our poverty that saves us. Ultimately, it is God who saves us. What our wealth does or what our poverty does is keep us from acknowledging our need for a Savior. Our wealth doesn't damn us. Our wealth doesn't save us. God will save us if, if we lay aside whatever it is that stands between us and him. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have paid the price. And thank you that with God all things are possible. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.